Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, May 17th, 2021, and we're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Yero, a wannabe walking fish encyclopedia. <laughs> Our Fish of the Week is the Chinook Salmon, and very specifically, Kenai River Kings. Thirty-six years ago today, Les Anderson of Saldatna, Alaska, landed the all-tackle world record Chinook. It weighed 97 pounds, 4 ounces. We have two guests with us today, both from Alaska's Kenai Peninsula. We've got Andy Loringer, who's the refuge manager at Kenai National Wildlife Refuge. We've got Jim Bersma, who's a fisheries biologist with our Kenai Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office. Andy, can you take us to the Kenai River? What are people coming to the Kenai River for? You know, it's a world-renowned fishery. Some of that early fame was about the Chinook salmon and fishing opportunities for Chinook being the largest of the Pacific salmon. But there are tremendous opportunities for resident fisheries, uh, particularly rainbow trout, uh, managed as a trophy fishery for rainbows. There are also a couple of runs of sockeye salmon and the coho salmon run in, in August and September is pretty spectacular fishing as well. Would you mind giving us just, you know, a visual description of a Chinook salmon? Well, coming, you know, coming out of the ocean, of course, they're, they're fa fairly uh, a silver, you know, silver colored fish. And they have black spotted markings uh, on the back, uh, all the way down the back. And to include both of the lobes of the tail, they also have a black marking inside the gum line, which is, you know, kind of important for distinguishing, especially in the younger age fish. And they're kind of deep bodied, typically the females, um, especially. Jim, now there's some variation among king salmon. Can you tell us a little bit about the tributary versus mainstem Chinooks, like timing of their return? Where are they going? Are they interacting at all? So... And for regulatory purposes, historically, they were called the, the early and the late run. And that's based on their, the timing that those populations enter the rivers. And the, the tributary spawners typically in, enter the river starting right about now, around the 10th of May, and peter out around the 1st of July. And then that late run is July through the end of August, typically. And the two peak nature of the run timing is really due to the differences in spawning water temperatures. And the big lakes in the system moderate the annual temperatures through, through the year and provide adequate spawning temperatures longer into the year. We mentioned earlier that this is the anniversary of the world record all tackle king salmon being caught out of the Kenai River. But in fact, I think uh, something like eight out of the top 10 biggest king salmon ever caught have come from the Kenai. And I'm curious, what about it makes, what, what about the Kenai population makes them get so big? And also if one of these runs that we're talking about uh, has bigger genes in it than the other, uh, so to speak. Yeah, so, so the thought is that their spawning conditions require them to have a larger body size. So these main stem, stem spawning fish that spin it, that spawn in the deeper, fast flowing waters need a larger body size 
to maintain position, dig in the, the larger gravels and, and be successful spawners. So right now, the, the early runs will, will average around 5,000 fish. And then obviously those fish are protracted over time as they enter and spawn and then move out. And so typically inside the Benjamin Creek, they'll stage in, in the Keeley River. Benjamin Creek is a tributary of the Keeley and the Keeley is a tributary of the Kenai. And they'll stage in the mouth of the Keeley, hold there until they're ripe, will go into the creek and, and do their business and come and then that'll be it. And they'll, you know, at any given time, there'll be, you know, 100 to 200 fish in that stretch. And then wow. that persists for about a month while they're doing all that. And has that has that size been changing over time? Like, can people still expect to catch large fish like that? Or is there some variation? Uh, yeah. So, you know, across the North, North Pacific in the last few decades, we've lost between eight and 10% of the body size of Chinooks. And the Kenai is no exception. Both the late run and the early run components are losing their body mass. So those fish are getting smaller and those that reduction in size is implications for how many eggs those fish can produce and then how much production we can expect from the total population. And just um, to ground folks again in kind of the life history of salmon, I mean, so these fish, they're born in the Kenai River, going out to sea. How long are they spending at sea? And how does that influence kind of what size they're returning at? Yeah, so typically for the, for Kenai Chinook, they, they only spend a, a single year in freshwater. And then the remainder of their life is, is spent at sea. You know, I grew up in Wyoming and did a lot of elk hunting, you know, in my teens and early 20s. And the way I like to think about Chinook spawning is a lot like an elk herd, right? Like you you have two, you have a dominant male, you have a bunch of females, and then you have a bunch of smaller males that surround these females that occasionally are successful at reproducing. But in general, what they are success, usually successful at is exhausting the larger male and moving the females around and causing the entire population or the population of the larger oldest individuals to be a little less productive. And so when you saturate the spawning population with a ton of younger, less productive males that act in that way, you you end up with lower productivity. Is there like a slot limit or something? There are active management actions that have been taken to try and address this stuff. And one of them is a slot limit. So this early run component where we're seeing the, the most dramatic declines in size, there has been limited a, a slot limit in order to preserve those largest fish. So we're talking about a pretty complicated social and ecological system. There's a lot at play in the ocean. There's a lot of play in the fisheries. A lot of people value them. What are some of the ways that Fish and Wildlife Service and Fish and Game are getting their like the data? Like how do you how do you measure what's going on in these different environments to inform management and conservation of these fish? 
generally the the in-season management of the fishery is done by sonar counts in the lower river as fish are entering the river and then they take creel censuses to figure out you know what the sport harvest is in river and then adjust their management strategy accordingly from that some of the the you know after season or post season management actions that get taken are a result of some of these longer term data sets that have happened in the past and are currently happening. So the trends that we talked about, about declining ages and sizes of fish, those became evident because we have been collecting escapement data from different weirs around the system and from that sonar site for, you know, decades that allows us to discern those trends. Yeah. And weirs are pretty cool. There are those, you know, different structures that go across a river basically and fish are funneled into a a spot where fisheries biologists can take a look at them and then they continue upstream to their spawning grounds just for folks who aren't familiar with what a weir is a pretty cool management technique another kind of interesting aspect of fisheries management and fisheries research you know is the genetics component you know one of the things that as these techniques are advanced and become more sophisticated, there's been a lot of information generated on that have differentiated even between the different tributaries, the genetic differences between, you know, salmon, but also for Chinook salmon, there's been some work done on the Kenai. Well, I'm just generally curious about what part of the river people tend to focus their targeting these fish on? Are they down closer to the ocean? Or are they further up into the actual, the, the running bit of the river? So it, a lot of the effort, where the effort occurs is due to the regulatory actions that they've taken. They've tried to restrict people from fishing directly in the mouths of these tributaries where, where fish typically stage and hold to try and protect them as they get ready to, to move up to this, into the spawning areas. And, and what people do is typically they'll, they'll drift or back troll either a quick fish or a spinning glow with eggs and slowly back down and, and try and get a hold of them. And that section of river is, can be pretty congested, you know, when the, when the fishing is good and there's a lot of people there, there, it's not uncommon to see four to 500 boats on the river oh, in, that, wow. in that one section. So it's, it can be extremely busy. How wide is the river at that point? You know, it varies from stretch to stretch, a little bit wider as you, you know, you approach the mouth, you know, and of course the fishing pretty much um, occurs from right around river mile eight uh, upstream now. So that lower section of the river tends to be a little wider, but there are narrow sections. We're talking, you know, less than a hundred yards in most places. It's not wide. And what kind of boats are folks using? So the, the preferred boat for, for the guide fishermen is, is like a Willie Predator. It's an open, about 22-foot uh, boat. And uh, yeah, and so on the Kenai, we have a, a horsepower restriction. So it has to be below 50 horsepower. So that obviously just uh, restricts the size of the hull of the boat and, and the actual width and depth of the river limit the size and how many boats can actually fit in the in the area too so it's it can be a zoo 
Hey there, everyone. One thing that we want you to always keep in mind, regardless of what it is that you're fishing for, is safety. Every week we're going to give you a tip that you can use to stay safe while you're out on the water. Today's safety tip is one that I could take to heart a bit more myself, and that is to stay hydrated. I know that on days when the fishing is good, I can find drinking enough water to be a challenge because I want to just keep casting. I'm not a medical professional, so I won't try to tell you the ideal amount of water to drink, but I like to have a full liter bottle with me for a half-day trip, and often go out and add a sports drink full of electrolytes if I plan to be out all day. I have friends who will drink twice this, and that just goes to show that you need to figure out for yourself how much water you need to stave off headaches and dehydration. Be aware that if you travel to go fishing in the swamp or in the desert, you may need to pack more to drink to keep up with your body's extra water loss. So let's say you actually land a king salmon. What are some safe handling techniques for the fish itself if you plan to release it and for yourself? I mean, if you caught a, a, a big one like Les did. Yeah, typically for any catch and re release fish, you know, you, you want to try and keep them in the water as much as possible and not stress them out as or stress them out as little as you can. And um, so these, like you said, these, these can be big fish that fight for a long time and you can obviously exhaust these these critters and once you land the fish you know moving as quickly as you can to reviving and releasing the fish is obviously preferable to to try and keep them alive and going and you know on warmer days that stress can be higher and so it's on those days, you, you you typically want to be more careful and try and get those those critters released as quickly as possible. What weight line should people be using to ensure that they're getting these fish in in a timely manner and not just exhausting them? So I have fifty pound test on my rods and reels, and you know that typically does. So so typically, what happens when you hook a fish is you'll you know take the boat out of gear and start to to you know, follow the fish as it tries to run. You're not catching the, the fish. The fish is catching itself. And so what you're trying to do is wear it out enough to be able to reel it in. And so what you, you're using the boat for is to follow that fish around wherever it wants to go, upstream, downstream, left, right, or center. And so you're, you're maintaining the pressure of, with the rod and the reel like you normally would with a fish, but you're using that boat to not have to pull the entire weight of the fish with the rod and the reel. And so you, you can get away with a little bit lighter tackle than you normally would have, say if you were bank fishing or something like that. And you, you will do that, you know, for 45 minutes to a couple hours until you, you can land that fish. And so it's real exciting. It, it's it usually takes quite a while to, to actually land one and it's pretty fun. As you can imagine, you know, in terms of the skill set involved is not only the person that has the fish at the end of the line, but the boat operator as well. Oh, keeping, yeah. keeping, avoiding hazards, which a large number of the hazards are associated with, you know, other boats and other lines in the water and you know, avoiding all of that and putting the individual in the best position to, to land that fish is, is a skill set all of its own.
I'd like each of you to describe your favorite way to eat king salmon if you have a favorite recipe. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I, I love them on the grill and there's a number of different, you know, preparations. But one thing about a king salmon, you know, and of course, we try to use just about every every part of the fish and not let any to go to waste. But the, you know, king salmon, you know, once you fillet them, there's a meal in, in the meat that is not removed in the fillet process. And grilling up, you know, we call it the carcass, but grilling up the carcass and just picking it clean <laughs> is just an amazing treat. So, no, I guess my favorite, uh, I guess, way to eat it is as soon as possible. I think you know, it's, the, the fresher, the better. And, and usually, you know, they're fairly rare to, to catch and keep, at least for us. And that it's usually a big deal. We put it on the barbecue and invite folks over and eat them, eat it right away. That's, that's the way I like to do it. How does king salmon compare to the other salmon species in terms of flavor? It typically has a lot more oil content, so it, it's a little more flavorful and, it, you know, not quite as dry as, say, a sockeye or a coho. And that's, I guess that's the best way I would describe it. We've tried, um, so whenever we catch salmon, we also eat the heads. And you can actually get a lot of meat out of the cheeks. And it's called the nape, so like around the neck, but bacon that. Sushi, I think in terms of king salmon, like I've I've eaten so much salmon since being here in Alaska that I've kind of gotten over cooking it to some degree. But with king salmon, that's the one where I, I will, yeah, cooking it, baking it, grilling it. It is very delicious. And I think I'd save the sushi for some of the other species like sakai probably. Well, it's been great talking to you two today. Thank you so much, Jim and Andy. Yeah, thank you, guys. We'd like everyone to get out there and enjoy all the fish and make sure you get a king stamp if you plan on fishing Chinooks this year. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. The show is produced by David Hoffman, co-produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.